0: And try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Shashank Samala, CEO of Heirloom. Heirloom's on a mission to accelerate our planet's transition to a carbon negative society. Their aim is to remove a billion tons of carbon dioxide by 2035 using natural processes to engineer the world's most cost effective direct air capture solution. Naturally occurring minerals alongside forests, soils, and the ocean are one of our planet's most vital carbon sinks, and over geological timescales, carbon dioxide in the air and water chemically bind to these minerals and permanently turn to stone. Heirloom's technology enhances this natural process called carbon mineralization to help minerals absorb CO2 from the ambient air in days rather than years. I was excited to bring Shashank on the show to learn more about Heirloom's approach, Shashank's story of founding a company in an unrelated space and scaling it over many years before transitioning into now working on direct air capture, and also just a general conversation about where direct air capture is, where it needs to go, some of the barriers holding it back, and what Shashank believes are some changes that could most accelerate. Direct air capture's widespread deployment. Shashank, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Jason. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, so excited about what you're doing at Heirloom and excited to learn more about it and to give the listeners a chance to get educated on it as well. So, with that, maybe we'll just take it right from the top. What is Heirloom?
1: Heirloom is a direct air capture company and leveraging carbon mineralization. And you know, we have a goal of removing a billion tons from air by 2035, and we think we have a low cost and highly scalable and lower technical risk approach to get there, and happy to work with this amazing team we have.
0: Great. And I have lots of questions about the company, but before we get too far down the path, maybe talk a bit about the origin story, how it came about, when it came about, and most importantly, why it came about.
1: Absolutely. So, personally, I grew up in Southeast India, and growing up saw firsthand impact, negative impacts of climate on people. You know, increasing levels of cyclones and droughts and, and so forth. And you know, we didn't call it climate change back then, but the increasing frequency of it really impacted lots of livelihoods. Personally, I got a you know big break, moved to the U.S., and went to good schools. Eventually, started a company called Tempo Automation, which essentially uses software and robotics to make manufacturing of electronics much much faster to help engineers prototype uh, hardware and get to production faster so now we help many reusable rocket companies satellites medical devices consumer electronics we built electronics for the mars rover from nasa that just landed last month and you know it was, it was great building tempo we hired a great leadership team and a few years ago i started thinking hey you know we're helping build a future but in some ways, future is already here. Uh, as Kim Stanley Robinson says, it's, it's, it's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And I thought, hey, climate change is really one of the biggest threats to that equality of opportunity. So I started learning a lot about it. And I actually ran into Noah Dykesh from Carbon 180 at Matt Rogers' place. So Matt Rogers was actually one of the early investors at Tempo. who's a co-founder of Nest and learned a lot about carbon removal.
0: Those aren't, his, I mean, his most notable achievement is coming on the My Climate Journey podcast as a guest. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I'm just joking. But yes, he did come on as a guest. We know Matt well.
1: Matt's awesome. And he's really the one to blame uh, for me to be here. So started thinking a lot about climate. And when and Noah was telling me about carbon removal, it's like, hey, why are we not already doing this? And you know, a few minutes later, the IPCC report came out and actually you know, officially sort of talked about the scale at which carbon removal has to happen, you know, billions of tons a year. And it's not just a nice to have, but it's a must have now, right? It's if we care about 1.5C or 2C, it accelerates our timeline to get there. And I was looking at many other technologies as well. It's like steel decarbonization and concrete, hard to abate sectors, right? Agriculture. And along all of these dimensions, I came up with my own criteria about what things I want to work on. And, you know, the highest potential to the lowest effort from an entrepreneurship angle was carbon removal by far. And this was a few years ago. We started learning a lot. I read the negative emissions textbook and you know many, many papers got connected to the researchers and scientists behind all these papers, came up with my own criteria about what does high quality removal look like? Things like permanence and additionality and, and all those things we'll get to later. And I was unconvinced for a long time and you know carbon mineralization specifically caught my attention because it was low cost and highly permanent. And so you were getting really good properties of removal for low, lower cost, but he had a bunch of drawbacks with land land use and verifiability and so forth. So we continue to look, I got connected with Peter Kellerman, who's amazing, and he's been working on a concept with Jen Wilcox about this one approach that marries natural properties of minerals with directory capture to get to lower cost. Eventually we worked, continued to work on it, helped fund it, and we, About a year ago, early last year, left full-time Tempo to focus on this heirloom full-time, built a team, Uh, Noah joined, and now we're sort of off to the races, continuing to build out the team and going towards a demonstration plant, hopefully next year. So yeah, that's sort of the backstory, if you will. And yeah, Noah is is a big part of the story as well. So we'd love to have him cover some of it.
0: Yeah, Noah, it'd be great to hear a little bit about your journey and what led you to heirloom and what you're doing with the company.
2: Absolutely. So a little bit of my background, I actually met Jen Cox at the Colorado School of Mines in my junior year pursuing chemical engineering. So I chose chemical engineering because it felt like it would utilize my skill set, very math and science minded, in a way that could positively impact society. So that's always really been my driving force. And when I I took her carbon capture class my junior year at university, and it kind of opened my eyes to this whole world of carbon capture and storage, as well as carbon dioxide removal. So I, in my final year there, decided to continue into a PhD program with Jen, fantastic mentor, fantastic person. And I followed her to Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And in my first year of my PhD there, Peter Kellerman at Columbia, came to us with this idea for a passive direct air capture process that uses mineralization. And from there, we kind of worked to figure out the details of this process, marrying the direct air capture side with carbon mineralization, with some co-inventors, including Greg Dippel at the University of British Columbia and Phil Rinforth at Harriet Watt University. And we really... It was very interesting because we iterated over a bunch of different process designs and tried engineering the system and then unengineering the system. And ultimately, the most economic way to do it was the passive way. So we developed this concept for what the process might look like and performed a preliminary techno-economic analysis that led us to believe at scale we could achieve costs under $50 per ton of CO2 removed from the atmosphere, which is a really transformational number in this discussion so this really solidified the fact that we thought it could be an impactful technology to combat climate change and contribute positively to climate change mitigation. And that's really when Shashank entered the picture and we started these bigger conversations of what would it look like to commercialize this technology. And seeing and hearing about that vision for commercialization and how impactful, like having done some of the calculations myself of how impactful this process could be, really drove me to believe that it could be one key technology in helping mitigate the harmful effects of climate change and pursuing carbon dioxide removal. So that's kind of how I got involved in in Heirloom.
0: And Shashank, one question I have for you before we jump into the Heirloom bit specifically is just as a longtime entrepreneur who was not building a climate-focused company and transitioned into putting climate front and center right in the thick of it with direct air capture, which doesn't feel like the bunny slope, How has that transition been and and what would your advice be for other entrepreneurs who maybe are climate motivated and looking to follow down a similar path?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I have so much to say here. I think climate has been in the back of my head. I remember taking nuclear engineering classes at at school. So I think fundamentally where we are right now are, you know, we have a bunch of technologies, solar, wind, EVs, and, and a few other ones that have gotten to maturity and continue to come down the cost curve. So we are able to get down a lot of the low-hanging fruit. And I think what's remaining are these harder-to-abate sectors that are not easy. And I think we need a lot, lot more in entrepreneurs to tackle this, right? Like we're literally retooling the economy. And, you know, I learned a lot about at Tempo building factories and understanding unit economics and how, understanding, most importantly, the cost learning curves, how do you pair the power of markets, leverage the power of markets with technology scaling to come down the cost curve? And I think fundamentally, climate tech companies is all about that. So if you're an entrepreneur in, in climate tech, every day you're thinking about every day you're thinking about rights law, right? Like how can I accelerate the pace at which I can double my production? Accelerate this pairing between a supply and demand, and you know you you want to be creating this flywheel effect between supply and demand, where while the costs are high, leverage markets that, that are able to bring up your scale, help you bring down the costs, which should unleash new markets for you. And hopefully that will also create the next doubling and so forth, strategically coming down that cost curve. And we've done that to some extent at Tempo. So you know, directory capture specifically is very interesting because CO2 is so diffuse in the air, right? It's, it's 0.04% of the air. So it's very much a chemical engineering problem. Though I think coming from an industrial automation background, I wanted to sort of turn this into a chemical engineering problem to more of an industrial automation problem as well. Because with that industrial automation, there's a lot of great technologies that have been invented in other areas. Like technologies that are trivial in other industries can be transformational in some new ones uh, if you can integrate them well. Not that this is not a chemical engineering problem either. Like this is a very big one for us, but I think bringing in... Things that I've learned in other spaces and and leveraging them here was key for me and and gave me more confidence. Hey, like, I think this is from a technical risk point of view, I can see how all the pieces come together. I can see a path to execution. And when I did that, I was able to say, Hey, I don't think this is a massive moonshot. I think I actually can see a a clear path to getting the job done. So I have a lot more to say about that. But yeah, that's sort of my initial perspective on it.
0: As a newcomer coming in, as I, was making the rounds and trying to figure out where to anchor it, it seems like there's a contingent of the climate world that are against these kinds of technological solutions like direct air capture. And it seems like one element is cost and another element is just scale and the amount of dent that it can make relative to other, maybe more natural types of solutions. So before we get into the specifics of heirlooms technology, I guess I'll just put that question for you is, why do you think there is this vocal contingent of the climate world that is so opposed to things like direct air capture? And do you think there's any merit to the concerns that they have? Yeah, I think
1: constructive feedback from the community is always good. I think the more transparent the carbon removal companies like us can be, the better we can have that dialogue. And I think more and more so than the last few years, I think almost everyone is in the camp of, hey, we definitely need directory capture and we definitely need carbon removal. And thanks to folks like Carbon 180 and a few other groups that showed the science behind this need, so I think the simple answer is, for that debate even, is, hey, like, should we focus our efforts in the things that we know work versus creating new technologies? And I think there's a lot of merit to that argument. It's like, hey, there are a lot of great technologies today that we need to accelerate to deploy. I, I totally agree with that. Though there are also newer technologies that are just important to the timeline at which we need to accelerate towards a carbon-negative society. So at the end of the day, it's like timeline is sort of the simple answer to that. I wish we weren't in this position, but the reality is there is billions of tons of CO2 that it's a carbon mass problem, right? Like there's a limited carbon budget and you have to both reduce and remove. The main thing that I think a lot of folks don't realize is a lot of the economy is still just so ingrained into fossil fuels, like harder to abate sectors that like concrete production and steel production there is you know new plants that are being built today starting today in china where the committed carbon is decades into the future and even if we were to aggressively shift away from try to decarbonize these technologies there will be decades away from actually doing it fully you know even in agriculture when you think about it right like even if alternative meat completely decarbonizes and we still likely have a billion cows roaming around in 20 years burping methane so it's Fundamentally, why we need a stopgap as well as an accelerant that can work across all of these hard to abate technologies. And the nice thing is, you know, when you think about Wright's law, for technology to really get down the cost curve, you need as many applications of it as possible. Like when you think about solar and lithium ion batteries, right? Like lithium ion batteries started with consumer electronics, then electric vehicles. Now we're looking at utility storage. So you need those markets to bring down these costs. So for direct air capture, I look at all of these industries that are very, very hard to abate. They're all chances for helping direct air capture come down the cost
2: curve. Kind of adding on to what Shashank just said is that it's not kind of an either or. We need to do both. We must both plant trees and do more nature-based solutions and also develop and deploy technological approaches like direct air capture. And there are Both advantages and drawbacks to both of those approaches. You know, direct air capture is quoted as being very expensive and, you know, it uses chemicals and it's an engineered approach to removing carbon from our atmosphere. And planting trees requires a lot of land area and it's not necessarily permanent in the way that it stores the CO2. So it's not so much that we should either plant trees or pursue direct air capture, but we really need everything and more than we have right now to adequately address the carbon problem of our society.
0: When it comes to deploying direct air capture at scale, what are the biggest barriers holding it back? And what are some of the more promising solutions to address them? And a follow up that we can come back to is just within that realm. How did you go about navigating the different solutions to land on the one that you ended up focusing on with heirloom?
1: Thanks for that. So I think a couple of things that come to mind that could be accelerants of DAC deployment. I think a lot of folks would say policy, and we certainly agree with that. And even in just the last couple of months, it's amazing to see how much new R and D dollars and infrastructure, some of the markets that are going to be created, have been coming online since the Biden administration and got in place. So you know, there's a lot more to go, a lot more clarity in some of these regulations like 45Q that we will need as well.
0: The other thing is
1: recruiting and bringing in talent from other industries into DAC and carbon removal. I think recruiting is just a massive industry. We're just right on the cusp of it. And we need a lot more folks to be excited and to be coming in and helping scale. So for me, that it's pretty exciting to be catalytic at the beginning of this adoption. Noah, what do you think?
2: I completely agree, especially with the aspect of creating carbon markets in society. So we have policies in the US like 45Q and low carbon fuel standard, but it's really creating a universal compliance market that can accelerate the development and deployment of some of these processes. In addition to that, I believe that more federal funding into deploying carbon removal technologies at scale would be a really big accelerant for some of these processes. There's a lot of grants and money moving into developing novel sorbents or process improvements on the research scale. But we really need to start rolling out some of these approaches on the industrial scale if we really want to scale them up and make a difference on climate. So since a lot of these systems are capitally intense, funding federal dollars into their deployment could really drastically accelerate the rate of deployment and the installed capacity that we have for these carbon removal approaches, specifically with reference to direct air capture.
0: And what are some of the most promising approaches to direct air capture and also just if you had to look into the future do you think that it's going to be a winner take all or will it be a portfolio approach like how how will the direct air capture market play out if you had to venture a guess Yeah
1: for sure so first off i think today we didn't talk about voluntary markets yet but i think it's pretty amazing I, I, this didn't happen when, when a few years ago when i first got started with this but you know today we we're seeing a lot of big companies that are socially responsible paying for carbon removals to help decarbonize their emissions and their supply chain. So I think it we pretty much have a much higher demand than supply for DAC and that'll probably continue, especially as compliance markets like LCFS grow and other compliance markets across the EU and the US come online. So, you know, that's exciting from a markets angle, which has completely changed in the last six months to a year. So what a promising approach for DAC, in many ways this is the engineering challenge of the century and this will likely not be winner-take-all for many reasons so i think maybe to think about DAC i think we should sort of think about where costs come from right so it, DAC i think a simple framework to think about is it's two by two framework where on the front end you have the capture part where you're capturing co2 with some sort of sorbent whether it's a custom or something natural so there's capex and opex associated with it so for some companies there is these fans that are in custom membranes that drive some of that capture. And then there is the OPEX associated with that. So the energy that drives the front end. And on the back end, again, same thing, You have regeneration of that sorbent. So any sponge, if you will, that binds onto the CO2 molecule on, on the front end, you have to regenerate that sorbent. So by pulling out the CO2, and then there is CAPEX associated with it and OPEX, the energy to regenerate. So If you're an entrepreneur, if you're a scientist, you're looking at this two-by-two matrix and you're thinking, hey, what can I really do to make costs low? And when you look at the back end, a lot of this regeneration is limited by thermodynamics. So you're sort of kind of fighting with physics to some extent. And there are some approaches who can really drastically take that to a much lower energy. But when we look at this two-by-two matrix, we said, hey, on the front end, there's a lot more we can do to make it simplified and be clever about engineering actually binding onto the CO2 molecules. So, you know, first what we did is sort of we made it passive and we started using these naturally occurring minerals. And we can go deeper into that, but we think that meaningfully coming down on costs on the front end will change the economics of DAC. So at the end of the day, we're going to have to remove billions of tons of CO2 from air. You know, I think we extract oil at the tune of 4 billion tons of oil per year or something like that. And according to IPCC, we need a lot more, the, mine a lot more of that CO2 from air. So likely demand is going to outstrip supply for decades to come. So you're likely going to have many companies doing this, just like there's tens of companies, I think 20, 30 oil companies that each are worth just tens of billions of dollars. You're probably going to see something like this in carbon removal as well. And, and that's exactly what we need too. I hope every approach works. And to some extent, you can debate about the merits of cost on each one, and we should have constructive dialogue about which ones we should bet on. But at the end of the day, personally, as a climate advocate, I hope every one of these will succeed for climate targets, but also each of them, there's just going to be enough demand and, and just massive market for each one of them. So much longer answer than I hoped for, but Noah, and here's to your thoughts. I agree with the portfolio. A uh, part of
2: that, it's not going to be just one DAC solution. It should be many DAC solutions. And there are a lot of very promising solutions out there in addition to heirlooms.
0: You've touched on a little bit, but maybe just speak more directly to the heirloom approach and what makes it different.
2: The heirloom approach marries the natural properties of earth abundant minerals with a process for direct air capture. So we start with these earth abundant minerals that are specifically either magnesium or calcium carbonates, of which there are trillions of tons in the earth's crust, specifically calcium carbonate, which is limestone and a feedstock for cement and concrete production. So while the process works for either magnesium or calcium, I'm going to kind of illustrate how it works using calcium-based minerals. So the carbonate rock that we have is first sent into a high temperature reactor, which is called a calciner. And when the calcium carbonate reaches higher temperatures, which is roughly 900 degrees Celsius, it breaks down into its two component parts, which are CO2 and calcium oxide. The calcium oxide produced from this reaction is essentially a fine white powder, and the powder is highly reactive with CO2 at room temperatures and pressures. And what this means is that it will naturally react with the CO2 at room temperature, pressure, and atmospheric concentrations to reform those initial carbonate minerals and capture CO2 from the air in the process. So, more specifically, we spread this mineral out in a method that reduces land area requirements for the process, and while it occurs naturally, we found ways to accelerate the rate at which these oxides react with CO2 on the order of 2 weeks to a month as opposed to longer periods of a year or or even longer. Additionally, this approach reduces, as Chachunk mentioned, those front-end energy requirements associated with direct air capture systems by eliminating the use of fans and pumps that are used in some of the more engineering, what are called contactors, which facilitate the contact between the CO2 and the sorbent being used. After our materials are carbonated, we can recollect them in the form of calcium carbonates, and this allows us to feed them back into that high-temperature calciner and reproduce CO2 and calcium oxide. We can then continue this process cyclically. And after each of those calcination steps, or the steps in the high-temperature reactor, the CO2 can be captured and stored underground in sedimentary basins, which are the same types of basins that held carbon for millions of years in the form of oil. So that's essentially uh, an overview of how our process works from start to looping.
0: And when you think about staging, so how does a company like this go to market what are the key phases what phase are you in today and and what are the biggest things that you're trying to solve for
1: for sure yeah so for us there are two main thrusts of technology so one is the passive contactor and uh it's not fully you know even though we're leveraging natural properties there is a bunch of R&D and inventions that take place in ensuring that we can enhance and reduce, uh, enhance the reactions and also uh, reduce land area. And so that's one piece of technology. And the other one is obviously calcination. So the first phase is really you know, getting to a, a full cycle, integrated cycle where we can do looping. And that's what we are progressing towards. So we want to build a demo- demonstration plant, some sort of scaled on model of what an industrial plant looks like. And after that, it's going and designing and commissioning an industrial plant. And for us, our goal is to make that industrial plant profitable. And we think that we can be much, much lower scale in the initial size of that plant for it to be profitable. I don't think we need to be in the hundreds of thousands of tons, for example. And I think that's key because as we mentioned earlier, we need to start this flywheel between supply and demand as fast as possible and making that profitable from the get-go allows us to start with you know higher costs. And we think it's going to be more attractive cost than many other technologies, but it's not going to be $50 per ton to start nowhere close. So we're going to start with some reasonable amount. We're still profitable and come down it over the next 10 years. So demo plant, industrial plant, scaling industrial plants, and throughout the scaling too, there's lots of other technologies on R&D that we'll continue to do over the next 10 years to continue to find the specific process, but also look for ways where we can vertically integrate and further come down. Some cost cards that we
0: wouldn't otherwise. In terms of that cost, what are the biggest drivers of it? And what are the biggest levers to bring that cost down over time? I would say
1: that probably bucket them into three. One is the cost of energy, energy that goes into regenerating the sorbent. And that's something that we that we share with, you know, every other DAC company. And you know, the goal is to try to make it as efficient as possible, as close to the thermodynamic limit as possible. And that's sort of the you know, big challenge on the process engineering side. And also, we are betting somewhat there, right? Like we're not going to be using fossil fuels to run this plant. We're going to use renewable heat, onset solar, or wind, or nuclear, or geothermal, or that type of thing. So, and we believe that the cost scores for some of those technologies will continue making our techno economics work. And I think that's a bet many people make for DAC. And I think we, I don't think we have to be at the most aggressive of those estimates. I think even if you were to fall somewhere in the middle, I think our techno economics will still work. So first is energy requirements. Two is just really good engineering and clever engineering to make these systems as low cost as possible. So I think a lot of that is just building a great team, having great inventive culture and a creative culture. And number three is scale. A lot of these just as we see from the rights law for many other technologies on solar and automotive and so forth, you just need to deploy a lot, right? Like how do you come down costs? You just build a lot and you want to make sure you build it in a way that is as iterative and as modular as possible. So I'll bucket down to those three.
0: When you look out over the next 12 months, let's say, what are the key priorities for the company? Main
1: one is continuing to accelerate towards the demonstration plant. So main priority is recruiting. And also we've been in conversations with early customers to help us do some of these small deployments. We've been in great conversations with, with some early folks that are really bringing this industry to life. So we'd love to have more.
0: What type of profile of customers? I'm not asking for any names.
1: Oh, sure. Voluntary customers who've pledged to fund carbon negative technologies. And it's exciting to see more and more come online just over the last six months. And we need all of them. There's this concept of carbon purchasing agreement, right? Like I think one thing that we need in this industry is similar to what happened in solar. And when the like PPA's power purchasing agreements for renewables really allowed deployments and the cost reductions over the last 10, 15 years. So basically we need that even more accelerated on the carbon side. And Really good folks in the, in the ecosystem are working on something similar uh, with the CPA, we're calling it. And yeah, it's exciting. I think we're, we're going to have some announcements as an ecosystem over the next year or so to help early deployments that are going to be expensive, but will bring down the costs overall.
0: And just philosophically, when you look at some of these early voluntary adopters versus the mainstream that will hold out kicking and screaming until the policy says that they have to come. Do you, do you think that compliance will be mandatory in order to get any type of scale or do you think that the voluntary markets can be meaningful on their own?
1: It's sort of a chicken and egg problem and sort of they kind of work off of each other. I think some voluntary markets will enable some of these costs to be attractive for a compliance market to say, hey, this is not as bad as we thought. Let's deploy them. If you're in the compliance market, if you're working in policy and government, you want to ensure that the cost is at a point where it doesn't disrupt the ecosystem and doesn't disrupt the economy too much. So we want to make their jobs easier by showing costs that we're confident about. And over time, we will clear more and more Markets, compliance markets. There will be some states like California, who's already started in Washington and British Columbia. There will be more on the pioneering side, and as the costs come down more, we'll clear the market and all of these other ones. And there will be ones that are pioneering this, and we will encourage that, and we will welcome those with open arms. But I think as compliance markets gets in, you reduce scale, start increase scale and reduce cost. You will encourage more voluntary folks to come in as well. And folks who wouldn't pay a high price per ton, now they're looking at this. It's like, hey, I think this is a good chance for us to come in. So I think there's an interplay between them. It's exactly what happened with solar and wind in the last 15 years.
0: You mentioned that that policy matters and that there's some promising moves coming out of the Biden administration. Is the company f- fully reliant on policy? And whether you are or you aren't, what are the most impactful things that you hope will happen on the policy front in order to accelerate your efforts?
1: Yeah, so I think we can be very much a big profitable company with just probably voluntary markets. But we are doing this though to get to a billion tons as soon as possible. And I don't think we're gonna get there with just voluntary. Compliance will be definitely needed. And it's great to see, honestly, like the markets that are already coming online. So yeah, at the end of the day, we're in this because we actually want to make a dent in this. And it, like, words only go in some way and actions are the ones that actually count. So I think we have some really good folks in the administration now that are creating some of the scaffolding and the infrastructure for that to happen.
0: And if the compliance markets were to come around, let's say you could wave a magic wand and they were just here either at the federal level or in all the key states, then at that point, what would be the biggest barriers to fulfilling that on the other side? I I know we're a long way from that, but let's just say that it happened. Like where, where would the wheels come off the car? What areas of the business or the product?
1: There are a lot of challenges in deployment, right? We just released a blog post this morning about what does high quality carbon removal mean? And, you know, I think we have to be very thoughtful about deployment. We're at the cusp of this new industry that we're creating where there's second and third order impacts of what we do, there are some things with biofuels and solar that didn't happen super well, and that we're sort of kind of regretting. And for carbon removal, it means that hey, can we ensure we maintain equity and justice throughout this process of deployment? Can we ensure that there's you know sustainable ways where these plants that stay around for twenty, thirty years don't affect the community in a negative way? And a lot of those concerns we are thinking through now as we're designing the technology and ensuring that these can be deployed as many places as possible. So thinking through second and third order implications of deployment is one thing. And the other one I could think of is getting help on the monitoring verification side on the, for the carbon storage. This is something I think, again, the federal government is really good at doing. We're creating very clear criteria and infrastructure to help Verify the carbon storage for a long, long time to come. So, Noah, do you have anything to add there?
2: I think one other potential barrier that would occur is the kind of high capital requirements required for a lot of the direct air capture approaches and securing the funding to deploy at an appreciable scale. Saying everything that Tashank mentioned was addressed, then you still have the well, how do we secure the loans for this, making sure that the compliance market is suitable for securing enough capital to deploy these plants that then can take a year to two years to build so you have a lead time on getting up to operation. But I think, as mentioned, the biggest hurdle, one of the biggest hurdles there is deploying safe, monitorable, and verifiable carbon storage that can be used for processes like this.
0: So what is missing specifically in your ability to do that today?
2: There are a lot of different methods that have been developed and deployed for monitoring geologic storage. I think the primary aspect of that is not necessarily maybe monitoring and verification was the wrong words to use, but the availability of geologic storage and the entities to monitor and verify it. So today, geologic storage is not widely available in all of the places where it could be deployed. So there's a gap between what will be the demand for CO2 storage via carbon capture and storage and methods like direct air capture and the current storage capacity that has been drilled and is ready to go and has an entity that will monitor and verify that the carbon storage is occurring. So the real disconnect occurs where the deployed capacity of carbon storage meets the deployed capacity of carbon capture and carbon removal.
0: You mentioned funding. So how are you thinking about funding the company and how should one think about funding this kind of company as it relates to both staging but also the sources of capital along the way?
1: This is also one thing that I've seen completely transform over the last eighteen months, at least from an entrepreneur's perspective. I'm seeing, you know, initially sort of climate venture capital firms were helping fund early stage. Now we are seeing just technology agnostic venture capital firms coming into climate and funding carbon removal, which is uh, really amazing to see. And we need a lot of that. So we are so far funded by both climate VCs and some of these traditional venture capital firms. And I think early stage to sort of demonstration, we want that type of capital and as you move from a demonstration scale to industrial, at least in our perspective, we are we want to rapidly move towards a project financing model. And a lot of that, at least for carbon removal, comes from creating predictable revenue contracts and having clear debt coverage ratios that we are confident about that we can show a lender, hey, like this is the risk of this project. And this is to ensure that our cost of capital for that is as low as possible. So. Having gone through that a little bit, my previous company, and we were actually thinking a lot about that from the early onset, one way to think about building this company is, hey, how can we get highest confidence from a project financing firm as possible? And both from a commercialization angle and also de-risking the process parameters that will get a project financer to be confident about a project like this. So... Grants are a big part. We've been fortunate to get grants from our RPAE, for example, to help accelerate some of this. And we need a lot more of that at the initial industrial plants as well. Something we didn't talk about is guaranteed loans. I think we're not anywhere close to this, but some of the guaranteed loans that happen in the late 2000s for solar wind and EVs will help carbon removal as well. And I'm excited to see what comes from the administration on that, essentially to sort of to help some of the private lenders get used to this type of technology and eventually something that private folks can take from there.
0: You mentioned the importance of policy. So given that as a young company, is that something that you're resourcing to at all in terms of pushing that policy agenda along? It would be great to understand how you're thinking about that and also just... What your advice would be to other young companies in a similar place and whether there might be any gaps in the market or any trade groups, for example, that either exist or that you wish existed?
1: Yeah, I think there is, at least for carbon removal, folks like Carbon 180, I was an entrepreneur in residence at Carbon 180 for over a year, and they are very good at soliciting feedback from entrepreneurs. And so we sort of have really good back and forth with folks that are a friend and center to this discussion on the policy end. So personally, if you're not staffing to this, maybe we will in the future, but we have high trust in folks like Carbon 180 to lead the charge on that. And always really kind of the reason I'm here too. So it's they've kind of pioneered this before the IPCC report came out and, and they were sort of helped 45Q happen and everything. And I'm excited to see some things that will come out for the administration in the next year or two on this.
0: So if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate your business, what would it be? And how would you change it?
1: Many of these decarbonization technologies kind of work in concert with each other. So we need renewables and energy storage to get low cost. Without that, we won't get to techno economics that, that we need to. And I think that there is one magic wand. I would, I would say something that. Both helps the planet and helps carbon removal, which is low cost renewables and low cost energy storage. And they're just amazing folks working on that, and it's awesome to see. And a lot of folks working on that, so I'm optimistic. And so are I think a lot of climate VCs and other other advocates as well.
0: Great. And last question is just for anyone that's listening that's inspired: What kinds of people do you want to hear from, and how do you need help?
1: Yeah, I think you know we're hiring quickly and in many ways, not to be dramatic, but building a company is sort of like constructing a cathedral. Like You would want to ensure that the foundations are incredibly solid before building the outside and ensuring the structure can remain for the long term. So we are hiring important folks over the next year that can each be an important pillar for this cathedral. And so for that reason, we, you know we are hiring incredibly slowly, which is actually kind of against a lot of the advice you get, which is sort of hire fast and fire fast type of thing. So We're being deliberate, and we are sort of hiring for many hardware engineers, both experienced and more junior, as well as process engineers and operations folks. And and the four things we look for culturally, you know, number one is sort of climate mission, very incredibly mission focused. We value radical candor. We want to be courageous to each other in helping us each other improve and also be transparent and having open dialogue, both internally and externally. We care about persistence and persistent optimism. And the last thing, but obviously, is a lot of curiosity and maximizing your personal growth rate. If you like what you hear about the culture we have, I would love to talk to you. And we need a lot more folks getting into this fight. So looking forward to talking to folks.
0: And Shashank, anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners?
1: I think you've covered everything pretty well. What's so great about this community is the average intention of people in this community is just so altruistic and one help. So personally, I've had the time of my life interacting with folks in this community and excited for that. You, all the job that you're doing to increasing the size of this community, it's just amazing to see what you've done in the last 18 months. And thank you so much for having us and I look forward to working together in the future.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm so glad to have you come on the show. Thanks for being so generous with your time. And Shashank, Noah, best of luck to you and the whole Heirloom team. Thanks so much, Jason. See you now. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co